If you have Bibles, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 3, and I'm going to read the first 13 verses here. This is the reason that I, Paul, am a prisoner for Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles. For surely you have already heard of the commission of God's grace that was given me for you, and how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I wrote above in a few words, a reading of which will enable you to perceive my understanding of the mystery of Christ. In former generations, this mystery was not made known to humankind, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. That is, the Gentiles have become fellow heirs, members of the same body and sharers in the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I have become a servant according to the gift of God's grace that was given me by the working of his power. Although I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to me to bring to the Gentiles the news of the boundless riches of Christ and to make everyone see what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church, the wisdom of God and its rich variety might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose that he has carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have access to God, in boldness and confidence through faith in him. I pray, therefore, that you may not lose heart over my sufferings for you. They are your glory. So the question we've been asking in this series to the book of Ephesians is, what is the church? The church is a temple made up of living stones, those who have put faith in Jesus, that are built upon the foundation of the prophets and the apostles with Jesus as the chief cornerstone. But there's more to come. Because even though we know that's what the church is, in the passage that we just read together, the church is also a bit more. It's also the revealer of a mystery and the proclaimer of a truth that is declared to those who are in rebellion. So the title of our message today is Rebellion and Revelation. I put it in that order because the rebellion came first, revelation second. But in this text, the revelation comes first, the rebellion is hinted at second, and we'll get at that. Now, Something has been hidden, Paul says, and it's clear enough in the passage. We don't need to dig too deep to realize what is revealed. But the fact that this is a mystery, that this is something that God has hidden from all time, is something that we have to consider. And it reminds me of a proverb, and some of you may know it. It used to be one of my favorite proverbs. I think I still like it, but I think of it differently today than I did when I was young. But it's Proverbs chapter 25, verse 2. It says this. It is the glory of God to conceal things, but the glory of kings is to search things out. It's the glory of God to conceal things, but the glory of kings is to search things out. Paul is living out that proverb in this passage. God has concealed a mystery hidden from the beginning of time that has been revealed in these latter days, Paul's time, to the prophets and the apostles. And he has become a steward of this mystery that he declares, and that's his glory. And it is the Ephesians' glory, but it's God who concealed and revealed the mystery. I want to begin by just dialing into this passage that we've read together and getting to the heart of the matter. It's not a complicated passage in terms of what it's trying to declare, but the implications of what it says we'll spend more time on because that is harder. But what it's saying is somewhat clear. The heart of the matter can be found right here in Ephesians chapter three, verse five. In former generations, this mystery was not made known to humankind as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the spirit. That is, 
the Gentiles have become fellow heirs, members of the same body, and sharers in the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Now you might go, what? That's the mystery that Paul's all worked up about? What's the big deal about that? Well, we talked last week about the way in which the heart of humanity has always wanted to reunite under one banner. That was Babel. And that's been the goal of most nation building states who had any success throughout human history. So it's important because we are now finding out that what humans have always wanted to do, God also intends to do. So I suppose it's important there. But more so, after the fall in Eden, Adam and Eve were divided in some ways. Prior to that, they had become one flesh. They were married, and that's what it means. But at the same time, they had become one flesh. They were of one accord. They worked together. They were partners. She was created to be an Ezer Kenegdo for Adam, uh, uh, a power like as facing him, literally, in the, in the Hebrew. They were equals in every way. And yet, in that garden, Eve made a decision, a decision that divided the human race for the rest of time. She decided to collaborate with the serpent and take knowledge for herself so that she could be autonomous, so that she could control her own life. She didn't want to have to receive from God. She wanted to take what she wanted when she wanted it. And then she entices Adam, and Adam also follows in her wake. But there's a difference between the one who breaks the ice and the one who jumps in once it's broken, at least in the way God treats them. And there is enmity put between uh, the woman's children and the serpent, but there's also strife in the marriage. And so humanity is divided there in the most intimate of places. The first husband and wife face division. He rules over her. She desires him. So there's strife. And that strife doesn't remain just in Adam and Eve, but it gets played out. The very next story is about their two sons, Cain and Abel. But Cain kills Abel out of jealousy and selfish ambition, vain conceit. All of the language the Bible will later give to sin was present there. And so the two brothers are divided. And then they have another son named Seth, who sort of replaces Abel in terms of a faithful one in God's sight. And Cain is sent away. And then two lines develop. The line of Cain, very technologically proficient and powerful, but violent and warmongering. And the line of Seth, many of whom probably joined the line of Cain, but at least there was one godly set of descendants who continued to walk with God there. But they become fewer and fewer until finally, right before the great flood, only one human family follows God, the family of Noah. And all the rest have been given to darkness. They've chosen it, but they've also been given to it. And if you don't understand that apparent contradiction, Romans chapter 1 through 3 fleshes out some of what I mean to say there. So this strife has been with humanity from the beginning. So when God chooses Abraham, it would be very natural to think that what God was doing was saying, forget the rest of humanity. I'm going to save one. I'm going to save one family. I can't handle these monsters, but I'm going to take one family and through them, I'm going to raise up a sacred and holy people. And then through them, we'll get rid of the rest. 
That would be a natural way to read it. He never really tells us what his ultimate agenda is for the choosing of Abraham. It's hinted at light will come to the Gentiles through him, right? All nations. He'll bless all nations. So it's there at the beginning, but what does that mean? It certainly didn't sound like it meant they would all become brothers. That's the mystery that God has always intended to save the Gentiles, to bring them into this holy line. The scriptures say, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. The mystery that's been revealed that Paul is so excited about is that by hating Esau and loving Jacob, God intended to save Esau through Jacob. That's a mystery no one knew. And that's what he's talking about here. And he's having a hard time in the first century because as he declares this gospel to the Gentiles, for some reason, the Gentiles are more excited than the Jewish people are, at least percentage-wise, about this gospel. And very quickly, more Gentiles are coming in than Jewish people into this new entity, which should be an old entity. I mean, this is true Israel. And yet it seems to be taking on a shape of its own, almost as though it's an entirely new thing because so many Gentiles are coming in. And that causes problems in the early church for Paul because these Gentiles don't know Jewish ways. They've not been trained in Torah. The early Gentile converts in Acts were God-fearers, which meant they knew the God of Israel and they had studied Torah and they were aware of Jewish practices. But the later Gentiles that Paul was getting, they didn't have any connection with Judaism. And it creates all kinds of conflict. But for Paul, it, it, it may be causing problems. And I'm sure for some people, this was the curse of the gospel, but not for Paul. This was the blessing of the gospel that God in Christ was bringing all people back together. He was reclaiming the lost children of Adam, not just the lost children of Abraham. He was gathering humanity into one nation again. He was doing what failed at Babel, what failed in Egypt, what failed in Babylon, what failed in Persia, what fa failed in Greece, and even to this day continues to fail in Rome and the remnants of the Roman Empire. He was doing it in Christ. For Paul, that is a miracle. And that is the heart of this passage. Paul is saying, the mystery has been revealed. You Gentiles, are now co-heirs with Israel, grafted into the olive tree of Israel. You, are, you have become part of Israel. You too, who were not a people, have become the very people of God. And this has happened. And that's what Paul's excited about. And of course, the Ephesians would be excited about that because it seems the church is predominantly Gentile. So that's good news. Slightly different tone when he has to write the book of Galatians, which seems to be filled with people who are more Jewish. And I'm not saying that that's bad to be Jewish. It's just hard when you're the firstborn and you find out that all your younger brothers are going to inherit the same way. It's just hard. It's hard to hear that. So that's the heart of this passage. And we could really stop there and you would understand the passage just perfectly fine. But there's something here. Did you notice it? I'm calling this the hidden intention of God in this proclamation. It's in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 8. It says this, although I am the very least of all the saints, of all the holy ones, this grace was given to me to bring to the Gentiles the news of the boundless riches of Christ, of God's Messiah. He's giving the blessings of the covenant of Sinai, the blessings of God to the Gentiles. He thinks it's a great blessing. Not everybody saw it that way. Verse nine, and to make everyone see what is the plan of the mystery 
hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church, the wisdom of God in its rich variety might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Who is the church supposed to declare this mystery to? Other humans, right? Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, right? Like other humans, right? That's who we declare this. It's not. It's not all we declare this to. In the worldview of the First Testament, of the Old Testament, of the people of Israel, the ancient people of Israel, when God created the earth, he created the heavens and the earth, the spiritual and the physical. And he also created spiritual beings to help him superintend the earth, each given enough knowledge to do what they were tasked with doing. And so they are, they are given superintendency over a number of different things. Now, the New Testament will tell us that that is temporary, that humans are supposed to superintend even angels, but we have been temporarily made less than them, meaning under their governance while we grew up. So as we grow up and as we mature, they are superintending everything and directly accountable to God. And so God has a council. It's mentioned in Psalm 82, and you can find other places. But he has a council, a divine council. It's hinted at in Samuel and Kings, whenever the prophets get a vision of God's throne room. There's always a group of people there, spiritual beings, and they help God make decisions. There are passages in scripture where dialogue between God and these spiritual uh, beings are, is narrated. And so they are helping God to rule the earth helping him to govern the cosmos. So God doesn't need them, but he does. He, he seems to always share authority. And he's been doing that from the very beginning. But some of these rebelled against him. And we see that story in Genesis chapter six. And the serpent is one. He's in Eden. He's in the council chamber of God. He conspires with one of God's human creations and he uh, leads a rebellion. So he is one, but there are others too called in the First Testament, the sons of God, right? The spiritual beings who fall. So those people, some of them have been assigned, and we see this in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 8 and 9. Some of them have been assigned to rule the other nations of the earth. What Paul seems to say is that until the coming of Jesus and the revelation of the mystery that God intended to bring the Gentiles and the Jews into one body, creating a temple for the Holy Spirit built on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles. Until that revelation, the other spiritual forces who were governing the other nations of the earth thought they were governing condemned people. They thought they were ruling discarded people. But Paul is saying that the declaration of the church what happens when we actually live and behave like in Christ, there is no male nor female, no barbi barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, no Jew or Gentile, but all are one in Christ Jesus. When we actually live like that's true, because that's the mystery of the gospel hidden for all time, we not only declare a reunification of humanity under the lordship of Christ and declare the kingdom of God, we also declare a mystery that no spiritual being prior to the coming of Jesus had ever known, which is that God intends to gather his people from all the nations of the earth. And the spiritual beings receive that knowledge when we did, 
in the ministry of Jesus. And so part of what the church is, is a place in which the intentions of God are declared by the way we receive each other, by the way we live out our Christian faith, not only as a testimony to the world of what God is doing, but a testimony too to the spiritual forces in the heavenly realms. And in the book of Ephesians, these spiritual forces are very much front and center as to part of what God is confronting in the world. So we already read this one a little while ago, this chapter one, verses 20 to 21. It says, God put this power to work in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. Jesus is the ruler of all the earth, heavens, both material and spiritual, humans and spiritual beings. Jesus has been placed as Lord over them all as he sits enthroned in the heavenly places, but they are not all yet under his rule. Many are still in rebellion. And the mystery that's revealed through Christ is that he intends to gather a people from all the nations on the earth, which means all the spiritual forces are in for it. He's not just going to save Israel and let the others do their thing. He's gathering his people from all nations. So he has put all spiritual beings on notice. That is the the essence here of what Paul says in chapter one. Now here in chapter three, he says that the church is part of that proclamation, that by bringing Jew and Gentile together in one body, and by us living as the living stones of the temple of God in this world, in which there is no slave or free, Jew or Gentile, male or female, but all are one in Christ. By living that way, we put the whole universe, spiritual and material, on notice that Jesus is gathering. He is taking from them all. He is Lord of all. And that is part of what he's saying here. And then he gets back to this in chapter six, because you might think, well, those spiritual beings, they'd be thrilled. You'd think they'd be excited about that. But what becomes clear in Ephesians is they are not excited. That just like the humans who don't want Jesus to be Lord, there are spiritual beings who also don't want him to be Lord. And so the proclamation of this message does not only reach human resistance, but spiritual resistance too. And that's really, and we'll get to this when we get to it, but that's what Paul is meaning to talk about in chapter six of Ephesians. This is chapter six, verse 10. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his power. Put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. He is still corrupting the people of the earth and the spiritual beings. For our struggle is not against enemies of blood and flesh but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Jesus is coming to liberate his people from all the nations because he intends to gather people from every nation on earth who put faith in Christ. For Paul, that's good news. But for the spiritual forces of evil who are in rebellion, bad news bad news. And as we proclaim the message, we have to expect spiritual resistance to it. And that's why Paul says you must put on the full armor of God because we're at war. And that's our third point, the honor of tribulation, the honor of tribulation. It's Ephesians chapter three, verses 11 to 13. This is what Paul says. This was in accordance 
with the eternal purpose that he has carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have access to God in boldness and confidence through faith in him, through our trust in him. I pray, therefore, that you may not lose heart over my sufferings for you. That's the Greek word flipsis, my tribulations for you. They are your glory. This mystery, hidden for all time, has entrusted a revelation and a proclamation to the church, a series of them. What is the church? The church is both the temple in which these truths are proclaimed and the vessel by which they are proclaimed to both the heavens and the earth, to the spiritual forces and to the human rebels. All are meant to hear this message. First, the revelation first is that God's intention from the beginning was the reclamation of the human race in Jesus. He had not given up on humanity after the flood. By choosing Abraham, he had not discarded all the other nations. By loving Jacob and hating Esau, he had not decided that only one nation was worth his time. Quite the opposite. He made these choices for the sake of the rest. If anything, Israel was chosen to be the sacrificial lamb to save the rest of humanity. And Jesus embodied that as true Israel himself in the flesh and died while people were still sinners for both Jewish rebels and Gentile rebels, for male rebels and female rebels, for slaves who were rebels and for free people who were rebels. He saved them all. This is the mystery. So revelation number one is that it has always been God's intention from the very beginning to save us all. That has always been his intention. Not everybody will be saved, but God's intention is to bring salvation to the whole world. That's revelation number one. Revelation number two, Jesus is at war and has been since he ascended into the heavens and was seated at the right hand of the Almighty. Jesus has been at war with the authorities on, in both the heavens, the spiritual authorities, the rebellious spirits, and on earth, rebellious humans. He has been at war with all who have rejected his lordship. And you might say, well, if he's been at war, boy, it's a long one, 2,000 years. Why hasn't he finished it yet? Mercy. Because he's still gathering Gentiles and Jews. Because the full number has not yet come in. For 2,000 years, he's been at war with these beings. And the only reason they still exist, and the only reason we're still here, and the only reason sin still looks powerful is because his house is not yet full. And he will hold off the destruction until every last seat has been filled. Now, you might say, how many seats are there? That's, it's a metaphor. Only God knows the day or the hour that this invitation is over. Only God knows the number that he has set by his own wisdom to gather into his storehouses. Only God knows. So we cannot even have that conversation. It's a, it's a metaphor that's hidden in the heart of God. Jesus even says he doesn't know the day or the hour, but he did know that we have to invite until the time runs out. But Jesus has been at war with them. 
And so for 2000 years, we've watched the nations of the earth go through periods of peace and periods of devastation. We've watched plagues, famines, earthquakes for 2000 years. It's plagued the entire earth, terrible things, and then times of rest, and then terrible things, and then times of rest. And this is because God, Jesus is at war with their human leaders and their spiritual leaders. And he does in times of history, show them that he is in charge, that they are not in charge, that their sins are finding them out, that their wickedness is not okay with them. But then he backs off. Why does he back off and not finish the job? Because he's not gathered us all. He is still sending out his message for those who have ears to hear. And if you are here today, you are here because he is still calling. And he is coming for us. He is coming for us. That's revelation number two. Revelation number three is that those who accept this call, who put their faith in Jesus, they cannot seek to flee tribulation. They must embrace it. Because we serve a God who lays down his life for the lost. And those of us who follow him must be willing for our lives too to be sacrificed for the lost. That means some of us will live in nations that are devastated because God wants repentance. That means some of us. We'll live in seasons where there's no hope because God has to demonstrate the hopelessness of the faith that people put in the spiritual forces of evil and in their human governors and in their human wisdom. And so some of us will have to be willing to suffer in those seasons so that the message can be heard by those who still have not received it. And so Paul will say to these Ephesians, don't be discouraged that I'm suffering. My suffering is for your glory. If I wasn't willing to endure tribulation, you would have been lost. But I've embraced tribulation as Jesus himself did so you could hear this message. And by implication, he's also telling them, you need to be willing to suffer whatever God asks you to suffer so the message can continue to be proclaimed until the end. Because one day there will come the last day the message is proclaimed. One day his house will be full. One day he will declare that his mercy on the spiritual forces of evil who are in rebellion against him and the human rebels who are in common cause with them, he will decide that their day is over. Revelation tells that story. But all along the way, he will be proclaiming his gospel and calling to his lost sheep. Are you one of his lost sheep? Can you hear the Savior calling? but you must respond before the day of salvation ends.